As we did yesterday, we'll take questions from the floor. I'd encourage you to continue eating and uh, enjoying the good food that has been provided. And I have a question I've already told uh, Dr. Mbewe. I wanted to ask him since he mentioned books yesterday. And I want to ask him a question about books. But you, you go ahead and be thinking what you want to ask. We only got a certain number of questions uh, from the floor yesterday because of our time. And I want you to have every opportunity to ask your question. So you be ready. But I, I, I was interested not only at the impact of Banner Books on uh, what the Lord is doing in the churches in Zambia and on your heart and on the hearts of your colleagues. But I was interested in particular what, what books have been particularly influential on you, encouraging to you. Yeah, uh, let me try and go back to the early years of my, my Christian life and try and just pick out a few of those books that meant, um, that had a major molding effect on me. Um, one of the very first ones that I remember would be a biography that was done by Ian Murray entitled The Forgotten Spurgeon. Uh, the, the, the effect it had on me as I was reading it was that it left me with the, the message that doctrine is important. Mm. That it's not enough to simply be a popular preacher drawing the crowds, but that uh, true, solid, biblical teaching should undergird your life and be a real conviction and also undergird your actual preaching ministry. So, and especially that I, I saw something of the way he suffered in that book because of what he held on to, and his famous statement that I am willing to be eaten by dogs for the next 50 years, but the more distant future will, um, what was the phrase he used, will vindicate me. Mm. And clearly, the more distant future has vindicated uh, C.H. Spurgeon. So that, that book definitely had quite a profound effect on me in terms of ministry. Another book that I recall on the side of biography was uh, Arnold Dalimore's biography of George Whitfield. I, I must admit there that uh, it was really the first volume. It's a two-volume set. Mm -hmm. or now it's produced one, which is a single volume. But it was a two-volume set. And it was really the first volume because there I was seeing Whitfield starting building uh, his ministry indirectly, in that he wasn't directly wanting to build a ministry, uh, getting converted, uh, getting into a real understanding of the doctrines of grace, and then you know, crossing the Atlantic a few times with uh, his preaching ministry. By the time I got into the second volume, uh, it was clear that his life had become monotonous. Hmm. And that he was just preaching, 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 preaching. The next page is preaching, preaching, preaching. The next page is preaching, preaching, preaching. And you know, there was hardly any sense of movement. So I sort of lost uh, the momentum along the way. Um, but still, I must admit that it left me with a sense of...
you know, loving the Lord and giving myself to labor with all that God has given me by way of abilities to his glory. Mm. And also just having a, um, a, a Catholicity of spirit within a certain framework, and especially his attitude towards John Wesley, mm. um, even to the point of uh, leaving it um, in his will that if he dies, then Wesley should handle his funeral. Um, I think that said a lot to me that uh, he, kn he knew where to draw the lines and so forth. Uh, on the side of doctrine, um, the, it, it was um, systematic theology by Louis Bekoff. Now, you know, I, you're probably seeing a smile on my face because I've never forgotten beginning to read that thick volume. And I think the first chapter was something like the knowability of God. I have to appreciate that at that point I was either in my late teens or my early 20s, but definitely younger than the age of 22, and then beginning to read. And I remember after just the first page, closing the book, closing my eyes, I'm thinking, wow. <laughs> And then I looked at this huge volume, thinking, if the first page has knocked me out like that, <laughs> will I survive this? <laughs> yeah, but uh, having gone a few pages and so on, you, you begin to get the gist and the sense of uh, systematic theology, where it's going and so on. So... Yes, I, I did su survive that. On a more devotional level, again, really, this is the, the first few years. Um, J.I. Parker's Knowing God um, really impacted me. Um, he later on produced another book. It's probably going by another title now, but then it was called um, God's Words. And really he was expounding the, the different major type, uh, words in Christian theology. So again, that was, that was a, a real help. And then a, a, a little book, well, it's not so little, by, um, I think it's Bruce Milne, uh, also on Doctrine, I forget its titles, but that's a, a more sort of British book. I think between those books, I was really helped to, to see my way through doctrinally. Um, when I became a pastor, there were basically books like uh, Preaching and Preachers by Lord Johns. Um, I, I definitely recall that having quite a, an impact on my life. There was another one by Charles Bridges, and most of these would be Ban of Truth books because that's what we had available. Um, uh, Charles Bridges, I think it's the Christian Ministry. Uh, that was also a great help in those early years of my pastoral ministry, giving me a sense of direction. 
Yes, I think those would be some of the, the early books. Other than the Lloyd-Jones volume on preaching, do, do you have other books on preaching that you would either recommend or that have been helpful to you? Yeah, just, just one or two others that I have found playing quite a sort of pivotal role. I know uh, John Piper's The Supremacy of God in Preaching uh, was a breath of fresh air. Uh, in just getting God back at the center of of all that uh, I am uh, seeking to to do in in my uh, preaching ministry, um, I forget this particular title, but it, but it's by John MacArthur. Although he's not the single author, it was the uh, master's uh, faculty. But it's, it's also on preaching. I just forget the, the other word in, in the title. Um, again, it, 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 it's been very helpful because it sort of gives quite a bit of the breadth of uh, uh, pastoral ministry and especially preaching. And then you're bringing it to more or less uh, the present uh, century. Um, I'm trying to think which other ones have played uh, a, a significant role with respect to uh, to pastoral preaching and pastoral ministry. I think largely those would be the ones. Yeah. Do you have questions that you would like to ask? Yes. And we'll bring the microphone to you so that we can all hear you. First, a word of appreciation, uh, and especially in a coming and living and had grown in a more sophisticated Western culture. It is great and I think we have a lot, and personally, I have a lot to learn with your simplicity and clarity in which you uh, brought to us uh, in these days. Uh, I would ask you, uh, coming, as you say, from back home, uh, what would you say would be, um, in your opinion, the greatest weaknesses and challenges for us in the Western Church. Yeah, um, I think the phrase I normally use is that often our strengths are our weaknesses. If you are a person, for instance, who works hard, it's very easy for you to become a, a workaholic and in the process destroy your own family life, okay? So uh, it's, it's really the blessings that God gives us becoming a curse in the process. And I think that's, that's the main thing that uh, I tend to notice in, in the Western world, in that uh, God has obviously in his common grace bestowed upon the, the Western world a lot in terms of the uh, comforts and amenities and so on of this life. And uh, that tends, I think, one, to dampen our, our sense of our need for God, uh, the reality of God, um, and just having him at the center of our life and living. In other words, there's so much noise around that it, it almost um, causes 
the, the still small voice of the living God to be lost. Um, so that's, that's the w one, one thing that I, I wouldn't say it's a weakness. I would use the phrase, I tremble for brethren in the West. Uh, because of the, the amount of toys, if I could use that phrase, um, that in the process, the, the fact that God is all satisfying can easily be missed. And he can then be compartmentalized in a little corner, and then the rest of this is just everything else. And invariably, uh, wh when that happens, um, you, you end up with the equivalent back home of a child who has eaten sweets before a main meal. So the, the edge is removed from the appetite. And the child then does not eat that which is really nutritious. Uh, I'll, I'll use a, a typical example. Uh, back home, our youth ministry, for instance, there's, during camps, there is recreation. But during the normal rest of the year, youth meetings, there's just no recreation. The, the kids come, they sing some songs, they study the Bible, or they hear actual preaching. Uh, we have a conference, we advertise, the, the theme of the conference is the final judgment, and we have six to seven hundred teenagers showing up for that conference. There's nothing on the adverts about all the fun and everything else. Um, I cross over to the West, and the, I'm supposed to be speaking at a youth meeting sometime, maybe Friday evening or something. And I get there, and it's fun, 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 fun. And the kids are tired, and then, you know, speak to them. <laughs> so I, I really have to go through a major mind shift. But again, I understand that in this context, and by and large, if you don't put in those things, the kids don't come out. Um, similarly, back home, uh, our, our young people literally run so much of church life. They, they're just, I mean, that's, that's them. It's, it's, uh, the, the various ministries are just full of young people doing so much. Their energies are there. Uh, rather than me trying to put in so much fun to attract them uh, and so that they just come and have games and then sort of sprinkle in a bit of of uh, spiritual truth so um, clearly the environment is dictating that and um, the one feels sympathy for people ministering in, in uh, this, this kind of context. And then, of course, um, the, the, the lack of openness to spiritual things that's growing in the West. I said somewhere, I can't remember where it is, uh, back home I can go to 
any home, speak to anyone about the things of God, and they will not look at me wondering, what's this? And feeling I'm invading their privacy. Um, but here, clearly, the context, the society is moving very rapidly into a kind of post-Christian uh, mentality. Uh, and I tend to tremble that uh, persecution for Christians is is around the curve, um, whereas uh, we still are living in a day of opportunity. And the appeal I tend to make back home is, look, let's make most use of this day of opportunity, for night may still may soon come, and so forth. Having said that. The places I normally come to when I come to the U.S., I go back encouraged uh, because I find uh, fidelity to the truth and a real fighting spirit rather than people who've given up or are now in complete compromise and evangelicalism is reduced to some watery stew. That's not what I, I, I keep finding. And maybe it's because I come into a bubble and quickly the same in that same bubble head back home. So I don't really sense the wider spiritual context except what I read about uh, and see um, through media. That's very good. Yes. Kind of a follow-up to some extent. Um, Culturally speaking, we, and you even mentioned books-wise, like all these Western authors. Um, who would be some non-Western authors, pastors, preachers um, you would know about, we may not know about, that would be edifying for us to hear from, read, read from, etc.? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, sadly, you know, I'm locked up with Western authors. Um, for instance, the, the book that I was just saying I, I had put together, and I was with the publishers last week in England, and one of the issues we were wrestling with was who is an evangelical and is well-known across Africa who could then do the foreword. And we had none. So in the end, we had to settle for one name in Southern Africa, one name in Eastern Africa, and one name in Western Africa. And even then, all the three names I personally didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> So after I was given the names, I had to Google <laughs> and then get back to them afterwards and say, yeah, yeah fine, fine. I'm, uh, I'm happy with what I've read about them. So um, the, the publishing ministry in Africa has, has suffered from the economy that's there. Um, you... You, first of all, you, you, you don't have the, the finances to pour into the project, but even when you have, you don't have as wide a readership in terms of the marketing. And consequently, 
publishing has really suffered. Uh, the same publishers working on uh, this book is coming to Zambia next year, and he was telling me he's looking for a publisher in Africa that they could partner with as a vehicle for African authors publishing uh, books that will spread across Africa. And my answer to him, even then as we were sitting together in the outskirts of London, was simply the fact that, uh, yeah, I'm a, I almost used the phrase we used back home. I don't know that it makes sense here. Uh, we, we call it a dog's horn. You know, a, a dog doesn't have a horn. Okay, so you'd say you are looking for a dog's horn. <laughs> okay, so I, I'm not too sure what phrase here equates with it. Um, but anyway, I still welcomed him that come and uh, let's see what we, we could do. Um, what I try to do back home when I visit different countries, I try to put together some books that are written by African authors so that when I have opportunity to uh, try and um, do some reading, I would perhaps have, yes, I'll read a Western book and Western books, but see something of someone in Africa saying something. And the, the best stat that I would give you, and it's just a one volume book, it's, the, it's called the Africa uh, Bible Commentary. The goodness with it is that it has spliced in the commentary articles written by African scholars dealing with issues that are peculiarly African. Now the advantage is not so much that you're reading those articles, but then you are having the actual names literally on one page that you could then Google and then find out what they've actually written. And at least you are within the context of evangelicalism largely. So that would be a good place to start. And some of the books I have at home are actually by a number of these individuals. Yeah. Other questions? Yes. Um, during your talk, you had um, mentioned that you're not proposed. Excuse me. You had spoken or courted two uh, women who turned you down because they said that uh, you wanted to get into pastoral ministry and that you waited till after <laughs> you proposed to tell your uh, current bride that you wanted to get into pastoral ministry <clears throat> because, and you said the cost of a wife. Um, these ladies understood that it was high. I'm sure your wife has experienced the high cost. Um, how would I shepherd my wife when she's coming to me and telling me she is paying a high price? Or um, what are some things or prayers or whatnot that I could um, use in my, in my daily devotion and shepherding my wife as I'm shepherding God's people? Yeah. Yeah. Um, first of all, just as a, a quick aside, not too long ago, a young lady in my church um, wanted to see me. And as she came in my office, she was saying, 
you know, uh, I've received a proposal from this young man who's also a, a member of our church now. We've sent him as a missionary. And um, I, I have accepted, but I'm really worried, she said. So when I asked her what it was, the word was about, she said, you know, because to be a pastor's wife will mean that we are really going to suffer. So I asked, suffer what? She goes, well, for one, we'll be in poverty for the rest of our lives. <laughs> <laughs> well, the first question I asked her in response to that was, look at me. So she looked and said, do I look like I'm suffering? <laughs> <laughs> Now, the reason why I said that is, yes, we shouldn't take away the fact that there will be periods of intense suffering of various kinds, and the fact that we probably will not be the richest guys uh, around. But, you know, there's the joy of the Lord that makes me not envy uh, those that are around me who are having a little extra from this world. But the second comment I made to her, I said to her, uh, you've been poverty. She said, yes. So I said, so really you, you would want the churches to, to increase the salaries of pastors, isn't it? She said, yes, yes. <laughs> so I said, but have you ever suggested that during our members' meetings? <laughs> 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 yeah, so she really sort of looked down with a bit of embarrassment. <laughs> uh, and it's just amazing how the, the view on the outside is, yeah, you know, the, there's going to be this lack, and yet hardly anyone wants to do anything about it. Um... But, you know, that was a bit of an aside. Coming, coming to uh, the issue at hand, um, I think, first of all, our, our priority as, as uh, pastors, the, you, your wife needs to be first. I mean, of course, God has his unrivaled mm -hmm. position. But you, you need to see your wife as somebody you must truly love and genuinely love and consequently genuinely protect. The, the Lord is not saying, come into the ministry and then put your wife onto the altar as you're sort of busy running around. Uh, she's a helper suitable to you. And she ought to be given the tender loving care. She ought to feel that where, for instance, my ill health, my anxieties and worries are on this side, and then his preaching appointments and everything else are on this side, he will immediately just give his apologies this side that I've got a wife to, to attend to. Uh, she, she, just the sense that this is the way my husband has worked out the priority with respect to myself goes a long way to ease the anxieties. Whereas if she feels as if she's an appendage to your life and ministry, 
that's where a lot of these anxieties and uh, warning bells and everything become overwhelming. So that's the, the first thing that I would definitely say. The second is to, to integrate your devotional lives in terms of reading the scriptures together, praying together, because what it does is it makes you one and consequently are moving together rather than that she's over there and you're crossing over to, to minister to her. And therefore, as you're reading God's word and every so often reading a Christian book together, you are, as it were, being ministered to together and praying over some of those anxieties uh, together. Um, so again, I repeat, so yes, in a sense, you are shepherding her, but in another sense, God is shepherding you together. And I think that's, that's uh, also um, crucial. Another aspect that I can bring in is <coughs> being Christocentric in everything. You know, it, my wife and myself, and indeed as our children come to Christ and so on, seeking to, to love the Lord who has loved us. And he has paid such a price for us that we should not be running away from the first scent of gunpowder, as it were, you know, the, the smoking gun. We, we should develop a sense of the eyes being on the cross, the, the overwhelming love of our Savior, that we, we count it a privilege to, to suffer anything for him. Um, it's a, it's a, dot, a drop in an ocean compared to the agony that he went through for us. So the balance between my loving my wife, cherishing her, nourishing her, with tender loving care and at the same time deliberately not trying to give the impression that suffering should be out of question but that it's it's a real honor which is really the biblical position uh, for Christ um, I think helps with the balance um, I think everything else will depend on your, your your wife's personality some wives are born commandos, you know, soldiers, they, they're looking for action, while other wives are really tender, very sensitive, and um, need a lot more protection. So the rest of it, I think, will depend on the way God has wired your wife. Mm. Wow, really good. Yes. Excuse me. Um, yeah, I appreciate uh, your encouraging message. Uh, and my question is, you know, in the in the church, um, to be have a productive uh, minister, you have to have uh, you know the, the co-work, the partnership with the elder. So my question is, how did you um, help them 
to to grow up spiritually with uh, the same mind to to do the the Lord's work, to mm. minister of the God's work for people. Yes, that's that's a a good question. Um, and I'm glad you're asking me in a context where I began pastoral ministry without an eldership. And then, you know, they, they came into being uh, over time. I, th I think, f first of all, um, the qualifications for elders are in the Bible. So it's not simply anyone who wears the trousers that you bring in. <laughs> I think that's... <laughs> that's that's obvious um, and what we encourage our because we do quite a lot of church planting as well and we encourage our missionary pastors to move in that direction is that somewhere along the line as you um, and as soon as possible in in your ministry as you are teaching you, you begin to notice those men in your circles in the context of the church who seem to, I mean, first of all, take God's word seriously um, and also in terms of applying it to their personal and domestic lives, uh, who seem to, to have a, a higher understanding of what you're teaching uh, to the point where when you're doing, for instance, an inductive Bible study, and they themselves are bringing out what they are saying in scripture. Your mind is saying, yeah, the, this guy seems to, to have the, the wherewithal by which he can bring out God's truth. He may not know everything yet, but you can see the rudiments of it. Um, and then as you see these, take them into a, a separate kind of men's class where you're now spending a little bit more time with the, um, the truths that make up you know, the systematic theology, that make up the life of the church, ecclesiology, um, giving them something of church history so that they have a perspective of where we are relative to where we're coming from and so on. Um, and I'm not talking about the level at which you, you, you go through in Bible college but sufficiently um, for them to, to begin to have a sense of direction with respect to Christian work. And then also begin to share with them some level of responsibilities, um, following up some church visitors, uh, sharing with them, at least in church planting level, that one or two of them begin to handle the finances, and so on and so forth, the leading of worship, uh, handling one or two of the Bible studies, and so as you're seeing this, you're really developing uh, these men. And out of that context, therefore, depending on your form of church government, you may either appoint them or, in our case, just bring names before the wider congregation for them to be elected. Um, and, and so really that's when you, you, you come to that. And then, and this is something crucial, what we have done over the years is within the leadership itself to say to ourselves, let's read this book together. And the reason why we've done that is that it then provides us opportunity to discuss issues that 
we are deliberately hearing a voice and we are responding to that voice. And as we are doing so, we are coming to a common understanding. Because if within the leadership all you are doing is just working, 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 before you know it, you know, you're reading different books, you might be heading in different directions and then have more serious clashes later on. Um, so especially in the earlier years of our eldership, we did that quite a lot. And I think it was helpful. Uh, and not everything we're reading we're agreeing with, but at least it, it provided us opportunity to wrestle with some issues. I think those are some of the things that I would uh, say. Maybe let me also add that an eldership is not, uh, you know, four, five, six men who see everything exactly the same. There is a, a, quite a bit of variety which, in fact, enriches eldership work. So you shouldn't fear the fact that over some issues, some secondary issues, you've agreed to disagree. You shouldn't fear that because there's still so much that is positive in your fellow leaders. Um, I think what matters is that within that leadership, it is understood who the primary leader is. <laughs> so that at least they recognize the fact that you are providing that primary leadership. Mm -hmm. That's good. I think we have time for one more question. Yes, Dr. Medeiros. Very simple question. I hope Paul so. Red. <laughs> uh, for example, I know that uh, as a pastor, you have not only your elders or very close friends, but as a pastor, you probably have other pastors close by yeah. that becomes a very good friends so that you don't feel lonely as well. And what would be the role for you of this? Because I have been one of, with one of them this past week in Manaus. Uh, yes. But I would like to, if you can share with the people here, the role of this have some close friends in ministry. Yes, in a sense, I touched on it yesterday. I must have talked about one of the advantages I have had, uh, which has been a real blessing of God to me having these very close friends uh, for well over 30 years and um, uh, discussing various issues with them. Um, you're preparing to preach. You, you find that you, you come across some thought that seems to fit the passage, but you've read your one or two commentaries and then none of them seems to deal with this, to be able to call them up and say, you know, brother, just in case I become a heretic here, <laughs> you know, this is what I'm thinking. And, and often they tend to bring sanity back to you uh, and so forth. Uh, that's one. Um, another is in terms of male-female relationships within the context of the church. Um, there will be one or two times when your, your, your heart is misbehaving and you're able to ring up your friend and say, you know, can you please look me in the face fairly consistently in the next few weeks and months because I, I, my heart is, I'm having a struggle here and so forth. 
Uh, I found that to be uh, a great help as well. Um, also, you know, that, that morning, especially the, what I call the Monday blues, mm -hmm. uh, when you feel as if the whole world hates you, when actually it's just your, your chemistry, uh, to, to drive out there and just spend, you know, have breakfast together um, and, and talk um, about how Sunday was and, and so on and pray together. I've, I've often found that that's been a great help. And also every so often I find that my friends are excited about a book that you know, they have just come across and, and so forth. And either therefore I borrow or the next time I have an opportunity to buy one, I, I also get one and read. I also find that it's a great help for our wives because then when we get together, sometimes we get together with our wives and then the wives are also able to speak at their level. Uh, so that also proves uh, a great help. And in my case, as I mentioned yesterday, I think it was, uh, we were leading a reformation in the country. And we were in our mid-twenties going into uh, our early thirties and getting a very bad name, uh, just crying on each other's shoulders was, was a real tonic uh, to our souls in the earlier part of the, the, uh, our ministries. So I'm, I'm definitely very grateful to God uh, for that, that the Lord's given me at least two such friends, very close friends for, for such a long time where we, we deal with each other without fear or favor. We know that our roots sink deep enough that a, a momentary heated debate doesn't threaten it at all. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us and for spending this time with us in the midst of a demanding ministry, not only in your own congregation, but in uh, other places around the world. We've greatly benefited from this time. And let's express again our appreciation to Dr. Yeah, well, thank you. Thank, thank you very much. Um, uh, as I may have mentioned, I'm, I'm more of a preacher than a lecturer, so if my messages came across more like sermons, it's the saying, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. <laughs> <laughs> But thank you very much. I've really appreciated being among you. Thank and, you. And um, let's close with prayer. Why don't we rise and pray? Our Heavenly Father, we commit this time to you, and we ask that the wisdom from our dear brother, which he has learned from you and from your word over the course of a lifetime of ministry, would serve us well. We pray that we would be faithful servants, that we would aim to be faithful to your word, that we would depend upon the work of the Holy Spirit to supply fruit to our ministry, but also to craft our character so that we walk in integrity and minister in holiness. And we ask, O oh God, that you would be magnified in these ministries and that our time together here would encourage us to that end. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.